Hello and welcome back to Canberra Conversations. Today's conversation is episode 92 of the podcast and we are joined by Armin Chowdhury, the founder of Armani Talks. During today's podcast, expect to learn about Armin's journey from arriving in the US as a shy child from Bangladesh to growing into the man that we speak to today and understanding how he has grown to be able to help people with their own communication skills and how they can speak better. As part of this conversation, we discuss the soft skills that improve that, how exposure and experience can improve your public speaking, as well as the role that the Toastmasters organization played in Armand's development. We also dive into overcoming nerves and how negative visualization has some unusual benefits despite the initial negative connotations you might think of. Lastly, I ask Armand what key habits he has and he maintains to continue to improve in his domain and become an expert. Today's podcast is supported and sponsored by Factory Weights. Factory Weights are a premium gym and fitness equipment retailer from dumbbells, kettlebells, barbells, plates, resistance bands, plyo boxes, and much, much more. They have you covered with high quality gym and fitness equipment at an affordable price. Next day delivery within the UK is just £3 and Factory Weights are heavy on quality, but light on price. Speaking of price, you can make a further saving of 10% using the code CALL10 for 10% off at the website, which will be linked in the show notes below, but you can type in factoryweights.co.uk and use CALL10 to make a further saving. Interestingly enough, if you're listening to this on Sunday the 10th of October, it is my 29th birthday. So thank you very much for tuning in on my day of birth and I hope you have an extra special day in enjoyment with this podcast. If you're listening to this at a later date, then as a belated birthday gift, I'm going to ask you to share this episode with a friend that you think might benefit. The podcast is a huge focus for me and I've been loving doing it. We're all the way up to episode 92 and the only way we can continue to reach more interesting people and enable me to get interesting guests like Armin on the podcast is to share it with like-minded people who will also enjoy it and grow our audience together. Without any further ado, let's dive into this conversation right now. Hello and welcome back to Cambro Conversations. Today's conversation, I'm privileged to be joined with the man behind Armani Talks, Armin. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Colin, for having me. I appreciate it. And we were laughing before we hit record about all the different ways that these episodes sometimes come about in terms of how we find each other, how we network, how we learn about what this person might add value on. And I was saying that the fact that you show up on multiple platforms Twitter, YouTube, podcasting, and your email list, which is where I was really found the easiest way to get to know you, was like something I've got tremendous respect for when you're able to deliver value across multiple platforms. Thank you. I appreciate that. And that's the most important part, isn't it? Just showing up consistently. And that's where you know certain people start. But then you know how life works out. You're starting for a while. You're going. You feel that momentum. And then eventually when life hits, you stop being consistent. So I learned this lesson earlier on in my life that consistency is king. It's just difficult to tell in the beginning stages. You just got to be in it for the long run to see the fruits. Such a good way to explain it. And I'm sure we'll talk about consistency as this conversation goes in, in different areas of your life. But my first question for you, Armin, would be, who, who are you and what do you do? Because that'll be the easiest way to bring the listeners up to speed about why I was so excited to have you on. Sure. So my name is Arman Chaudhary, the founder of Armani Talks. And this is a media company which helps shy entrepreneurs and professionals improve their communication skills. And my story, Colin, is a little unique because me starting Armani Talks is very counterintuitive. I started off in a hard skills dominant field in electrical engineering. And I don't know if it's the case with UK. But in the U.S., a lot of engineers are seen to be awkward, Massively not having social so. intelligence. <laughs> so throughout my career, I mean, a large part of my career dealt with the hard skills. And I noticed that these professionals, they were great in the technical aspects, coding, doing Excel, but they would stray away from public speaking, creative writing, asking for a promotion. So that's when I started to notice that there was a problem with soft skills in the engineering field. 
And that's when I started to get more curious about public speaking. And even before that, when I first moved to the United States of America, Colin, I was having this culture shock where back home, I knew how to speak perfectly. But in the US, I suddenly went from being talkative to shy. So a whole bunch of these different problems throughout my life is what eventually led me to starting Armani Talks. I wanted to demystify the world of communication skills from it being this ambiguous field, which a lot of people think of it as, such as charm, public speaking, connecting with others, making a friend. These are just stuff that happens. And I wanted to turn it into something that had processes, frameworks, and I wanted to address it sort of like an engineer. So that's the story behind Armani Talks. As soon as you said processes, my mind sprung immediately to that would connect really well with the type of personality that would be in engineering, that would be in a process-driven job and would be a lot of the people that would listen to a podcast on self-development. They would quite often be quite process-driven themselves. So when you take something intangible like communication, charisma, kind of confidence and break it down into something that can be more process-driven, step-driven, like ticking the boxes to move towards, that's why you probably found your your niche and you've built that so strongly now to such a strong audience on, on Twitter, in particular 40,000 followers now must, must kind of give you some validation in that regard. Absolutely. And that's something that I'll often get DMs about and something that I work with clients on where they're like, I knew that I was supposed to do this, but I never had a clue as to why I was supposed to do this. And just to give you an example, the art of writing like you speak, this is a skill set that can help you out in your professional life. You ever had that one moment when a guy is writing super formal to you on an email, for example, and you have no clue how to respond back because there's so much big words, uh, so much technical jargon. You're like, what does this guy want? So this sort of skill sets consistently comes in importance through our day-to-day lives. And the more that you understand that there's an art and science behind it, the more that you start taking it seriously. Yeah, undoubtedly. And I, I can think of many examples there where quite often, and we'll talk about your, your background coming from a foreign country, quite often when you receive an email from somebody in their second language, they sometimes go to the extremes of trying to write really formally. And you can see straight away that you're almost trying to underline their intelligence and grasp of the language through speaking really formally. Whereas we know that true mastery of the English language is actually being able to communicate concisely, quickly, almost slightly informally to get your point across without like using too many words. Absolutely. And that's something that I want to give you props for, because when you reached out to me to do the podcast, I initially knew what you wanted. It wasn't something where I'm like, huh, what does this guy exactly want? You were direct, you were precise, simple. And you also gave me a link for your podcast, gave social proof. Everything was done to perfection. So I, uh, no wonder that you're so consistent with your podcast. Thanks for that, Armin. And uh, I think a lot of that's been learned through prospecting for my day, day, day job in terms of new business and speaking to different clients, business to business sales. Like bottom line up front is a big principle that I have in, in my emails. It's like, get to the point. You don't need to introduce yourself. I'm not, I, c- I could introduce myself. I'm, for example, in the podcast rather, but I'm Colin Campbell. I create content on Instagram, email and podcast. And I've been doing it for X, Y, Z number of years. That's all well and good. But if I don't get to the point, you're lost before we even got into the body of the email. You're thinking, what's this guy talking about? Right. And I'm glad that you brought that up because just for even more context, oftentimes the people that you reach out to, I'm sure that they get a lot of emails too. So when you get to the point quick, that's that unique selling point that you have where other people at that point are still introducing who they are. Yeah, exactly that. And unless your introduction's got something that's so incredibly like reassuring in it in terms of social proof, it's not going to make the difference. Whereas if I can send you what my request is, I'd love you to come on my podcast to talk about X, Y, and Z. I'll send you a link to the podcast. So I'm kind of ticking that social proof box. And when you click through to the link, it looks credible. It looks believable. It looks like it's something that you would want to be involved in. Whereas if I just sent you a big screen of text about, oh, I've released over 90 episodes with X number of thousand downloads, and you'd be like, right, okay, that all sounds good. But visually, sometimes it's nice to go and look at something too, which again is part of communication, as I'm sure we'll get on to, Armin. Right, Colin. And that's all about consistency, isn't it? Because when I saw you, I was thinking, 
hmm, this guy has a lot of episodes and he consistently shows up as well. And consistency is a soft skill that the Armani Talks brand covers because it's more of an intangible thing versus a tangible thing. It's more of a game of the mind. And it's so crucial, especially in the information age. Absolutely. When it comes to your background then, when did you move from Bangladesh to the US and what was that period like in terms of you developing your English skills and your confidence to speak to others? So I was roughly around five years old when I, I came to the United States of America. And around that time, uh, before, when I was in Bangladesh, I was known as the troublemaker. I was always getting into fights. And over there, the teachers are allowed to hit you. So they could hit you with a ruler. And let's just say my hand was always swollen. And what would happen was when I came to the United States of America, my personality completely shifted. Rather than being extremely talkative at this point, now I was shy. And the reason I was shy was because I couldn't speak English that well. And what I could speak, I had a strong accent that a lot of the other kids made fun of. And due to the culture shock, plus not knowing the English language, plus getting made fun of by the other kids, that pretty much changed my personality from being talkative to more reserved and timid. So that was the beginning of my journey. And I would say that that's how I was like for the next couple of years. As subconsciously, I felt restricted whenever I wanted to say something. When did that start to change? Like, What was the, the turning point in you being a more confident person who would expose themselves to challenge? So this started to happen once I was in college and I was doing the College of Engineering. But around that time, also uh, Toastmasters, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later on, I came to my ch- club or my campus. And once they came to my campus, I was able to understand what Toastmasters was. And I saw that there was a way that you could learn public speaking, where beforehand, I always thought that public speaking was something that people just knew or didn't know. I never knew that it was a skill set. So when I saw that down the line, I started to go to Toastmasters more. And I'm obviously skipping a lot of steps at this point, but I started to go to Toastmasters more. I started to participate. I worked my way up from a guest to the recruitment chair to the external vice president of my club. And I started to deal with other people who are like my former self. So when I started to see myself becoming more confident through the act of public speaking, and I started to see other people who are, you know, extremely nervous, that's when I'm thinking, huh, now I'm on the other side. And being on the other side, you just have way more perspective versus the person who's actually going through nervousness. So that's just a brief summary of how the story went. Yeah, I, I love that. And I love when you maybe got that realization that you've made the step through to a level of competence where you're confident enough and skilled enough to impart your wisdom upon others who were a few steps behind you on your journey and empowering them to then go forward. That's one of the greatest ways that we can reinforce some of the lessons that we learn by teaching them onto others and then kind of reinforcing those through to you to be like, oh, wow, well, I actually, I do know this stuff and, I, and I'm actioning it and people are believing what I'm saying and actioning it for themselves as well. Yes. And just to add on to that point, there was this one guy that came to Toastmasters one time and he was roughly in his sixties or seventies. And he was like, I've waited 15 years for this moment. And I started to look at him and I'm thinking 15 years, what are you talking about? And he said for 15 years, he was trying to enter a Toastmasters, but last second, he would talk himself out of it. So 15 years in, finally, that day he was there and, you know, he he was starting to feel proud. He was starting to feel confident that he already conquered all of his demons. He didn't give a speech or anything like that on that particular meeting. Then next week he comes back and this time he gets called to do an impromptu speech. And this time he gets called on stage and he doesn't say a single word. When he didn't say a single word, He was so shocked by this moment that he said he was never going to show up again. Now, the reason that I bring up this story is because this was something similar to what happened with me. The first time I went to Toastmasters, I ended up getting called on stage and I didn't say a single word. And I was able to connect with him at that point. Unfortunately, I was not able to talk him out of 
quitting altogether. But that ties into the importance of actually having done it before because you could relate with these people and you could understand exactly the emotional pain points that they're feeling. Where for a logical person, they'll be like, you spent 15 years not entering a Toastmasters. Come on, man, be more courageous. But for me, I've been there before where I could understand a pain point like that. It's not completely irrational in my world. It's very logical, actually. It's very logical. And as you said there, you were telling us you moved to the US at around five years old and it took you until college. So maybe your late teens, early 20s before you were starting to really explore your skill set. So albeit that occurred during your childhood, this particular adult didn't expose themselves to public speaking and communicating out loud and being in a group environment for 15 years as a 45 year old or in his 50s. But you went through that period as a child. I'm obviously very grateful that you conquered it earlier on, whereas this guy waited a lot longer before he even tried to address it. You did so. But I know between the period of you arriving in the US and this kind of Toastmasters journey, there was a, a fairly tragic death within your life as well. How did that shape you as a man? Well, that was a, a very important moment for me because it started to show me a few things. One thing it showed me was that life is short. Two is that whatever you're complaining about right now, it could always be 10 times worse. So it gave a lot of perspective towards my fears where I was starting to think, you know, my, my fears are the worst. It's making me very self-focused. And once that death occurred, that's when I started to see you know, there's something way bigger in life. And now I'm finally seeing it. And whenever you get that perspective, Colin, the more that you start to feel brave, you start to have that chip on your shoulder. And I would say that's what it did for me. It allowed me to get back into the battlefield rather than just whining on the side. Yeah, I think perspective from death and our own mortality, but those around of us, is something that if we can tap into it more, we quite often find it pushes us on to new heights and things that we are capable of. So for you, it was re-entering the battlefield of actually putting yourself out there and communicating and speaking. And that's taken you to an extent where you're now able to teach that on to others. Whereas perhaps if you hadn't have used that tragic incident in the way that you have done, you could have continued to sit on the sidelines, sit on the bench, observe, and wonder what life might be like for you, whereas you've taken action and moved forward? Absolutely. Mainly because what you just said summed it up perfectly. There's two types of people. There's one type of person that is just on the sideline and they're poking holes a lot. I'm sure there's someone that's probably looking at you right now and it's like, I could do that. I could do a podcast and interview people. But people who are actually on the battlefield you'll notice that they're not often hating on others because they understand that anytime you're doing something, it's always more difficult to do it when you're actually in it versus when you're just observing outside of it. And for you, for example, I mean, what you do, where you're capable of doing podcasts, thinking of questions quickly, adjusting as the other person is speaking, that's a skill set. And it's a skill set that not everyone can do. So, when you enter the battlefield where you and I are in different arenas, yet there's that mutual respect because I know you're doing something that you said you were going to do and I'm doing something that I said I was going to do. And that's the two types of people out there, the people with skin in the game versus the people who just critique others. Undoubtedly. And I think there's that kind of, I know you're not a big Instagram man, but there's that kind of classic Instagram meme of lions don't lose, a, uh, lose sleep on the opinions of sheep and that kind of thing. But at the same time, there is some merit to it where if somebody isn't in the arena, then your respect for their opinion is less so. I really value what my listeners give me feedback on. So if they really like a particular episode or a particular style of episode or a particular guest, that's really valuable. But if somebody was massively critiquing the fact that I was doing a podcast at all, then that's when I would just be like, well, I'll just have to disregard your opinion unless you yourself are creating content in some other platform to a good level that I would have personal respect for. So I think it's really, it's always important that we draw the distinction between like where we get constructive feedback and criticism from, but then also there's other areas of feedback and criticism you get where you just have to simply turn it off because it's just not relevant and 
not not worth bothering about? Absolutely. It's pretty funny that this topic came up because I wrote a tweet about this yesterday. And I said that we view a penny and a dollar in a different light because we understand that the value is different. But often, just the way that we're programmed, our brain tends to wire all the opinions in the same light. We make the mistake of viewing a dollar as a penny and a penny as a dollar. And that's the mistake. So the more that someone has skin in the game, the more that they're trying to cultivate their skill set, there are going to be a lot of people who give dollar opinions, even $100 opinions. And sometimes these people who are delivering these great opinions may not have the best delivery, but it's up to us to be able to still take in that feedback because they are critiquing us. They're not just hating on us. A A critic typically goes out of his way to give holes in what we're doing. Plus he'll give a fix while a hater will just poke the holes and call it a day. So that's the penny opinion. That's from my hater. Yeah, that's so, so true. That's an absolutely brilliant analogy. And I, and, and I love that. And I hope that tweet reached it, reached enough people to impact them. My, my next question for you would be, how did the five superpowers that you identified within what you needed to achieve really lead to you finding more of a purpose and, and really altering this personality from the shy individual to the man that we're speaking to today? Yes. So the five superpowers, these are something that all connect with one another. Social skills, public speaking, storytelling, emotional intelligence, the ability to concentrate. I mean, these are capabilities that no one can ever take away from you. So if my house got hit by a hurricane, which is very common because I live in Florida, I will still have my soft skills. And the reason that this helped me out tremendously in terms of my life was the different ways that I could use it, Colin, where I could use it in the arena of public speaking. I could use it in the arena of doing interviews. I could use it in the arena of tweeting. So the more versatility that I saw in terms of practicality, the more that I realized that soft skills were something that others needed to learn as well. And that's why I'm so passionate in regards to it, because it was enough to just change my personality completely. It went, It took me from being talkative when I was initially in Bangladesh to being shy when I came to the U.S. to once again being more composed now. So I don't think being just talkative for the sake of being talkative is socially intelligent. I think being composed is the best thing. So that's where all these five soft skills tie in, Colin. It's something that directly impacts my life on a firsthand basis. Yeah, and, and these are incredibly important and if we were to go into some of those soft skills, what would be the initial ones that you would you would call out for the listener that are the most important to you? Well, I honestly think it depends on the personality type where certain people are speakers. You could tell that they'll say that, okay, when I meet someone new, I get nervous, but my friends and family who know me very well, they know that I, I never shut up. So this is a person that's a speaker And this is a person that should double down on public speaking or at least try it out. Find a local Toastmasters club near you or I don't know if they have a meetup where you're from. Have you heard of that by any chance? So that's a meetup app. Yeah, I I haven't explored that side of things. But when I was researching you and reading about Toastmasters and understanding it, I'm sure there'll be some form of equivalent within the UK. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure I can research after the fact and maybe include an introduction to this that will be, be relevant for people. Yes. Yeah, so basically, Meetup is it's a mobile app where you can see events being thrown around you. And if you don't see an event that resonates with you, you could create your own event. This is another way to practice public speaking, where you create your own event, invite people to it, and you could host the meeting. So these are certain ways that speakers can enter communication skills. But let's say someone's naturally a writer. Someone loves to text. Someone loves to write poetry, even read. Well, for this group of people, I recommend entering the soft skills world through writing. Get a Twitter account, get an email list, journal, something like that. And you'll notice, Colin, whether you enter it through the speaking route or through the writing route, eventually your paths will merge. A speaker has to eventually become a great writer and a writer eventually needs to become a great speaker. 
So find what suits your personality first and then wrap your path around that. That's such a powerful message. And I'm very, very glad that you linked the two together because as you say, their paths eventually intertwine and come together because the skills learned in one arena link with the other and there's transferable skills there. So to be able to speak clearly and enunciate and get your ideas across, you just have to swap around slightly how you do that in order to do that on paper or, or, or on text or on Twitter, whatever your medium is. So I really, really like that, the idea that there's a, there's a combination between the two. If we were to focus on the, the speaking side of things initially, public speaking is such a common fear for very, very many people. What were some of the ways that you improved upon that that were immediately actionable for you during your Toastmasters journey? So to get started off, the first time I did Toastmasters, I ended up getting nervous and I overthought, didn't say a word. And this was even more embarrassing because I ended up choking the speech in front of people that I knew. It was in my college campus. So this caused me not to go to Toastmasters for a couple of months. I was thinking about quitting. But eventually, I decided to enter Toastmasters again. And this time, I felt a little bit more courage because I got the worst part out of the way. So if your listeners are listening to this right now, choking a speech may sound extremely bad. But believe me, there's some good behind it because you start to work with more fearlessness when you realize that you got the worst part out of the way. So when I started to go back to Toastmasters, Colin, I started to participate more for that reason. And I started to do more table topics, which is the impromptu speech section of Toastmasters, uh, one to two minute impromptu talk. As I worked my way up through that, that's when I decided to become a member and I started to do more planned speeches. And after each planned speech, you get an evaluation of your speech of how you did, what parts you could improve, and what parts you're already good in. I took that feedback pretty seriously. And afterwards, depending on the club, there's a thing called love notes. And this is based on each club. And this is when the audience members all give you feedback too. So you have one guy who's an evaluator giving you feedback. Plus, in some clubs, the audience is giving you feedback. So the more that I took in all that information, I just gave more speech, got the feedback, refined, gave a speech, got the feedback, refined. And that was my three-step process. It's interesting. There's so many parallels when I have discussions with guests about progressively overloading. Now, I speak a lot about fitness and people training in the gym and getting stronger progressively over time, improving the physique, improving how they perform. And a lot of the time, it's just a gradual process of exposing themselves to more and more difficult situations more and more difficult training sessions more and more difficult movements heavier weights and in the exact same way you gradually progress the types of speeches and presentations that you were involved in you expose yourself to feedback from individuals who were further ahead in the journey than you and then eventually once you were ready to even people that were just consuming and taking in your content you were then able to take on board their feedback and improve it so that the next session or the next workout or the next time that you stepped into the arena whatever term we want to use you were better than the last time. And it's really interesting how exposure to different stimulus leads us to just get better almost naturally alongside a considered approach as you had. And I'll even take it a level further. There was a period, Colin, where I joined three different Toastmasters clubs. Okay. And the reason I did that was because of exactly what you said. The more experience that you have and the more different that these experiences are, the better. So I was at one point speaking to one audience, one day of the week, then a completely different audience, the second day of the week, and then another different audience. And these different ways of being creative allows you to skyrocket your process in the journey. I don't know if most people have three Toastmasters clubs near them, but I was blessed because I had three or five near me, but I capped out at three. Yeah, equally, like even if people were to scale that, it's just putting themselves in three situations a week or more regularly and more frequently that they can improve their ability to speak. So whether that's three new meetings with three new friends or three new groups or or three presentations that you can volunteer for and work, anything that's increasing your exposure to speaking is absolutely massive. Off the back of that, I'm thinking around like nervousness, because obviously for you to choke that first speech was an element of nerves. Did the nerves just start to subside based on exposure or were there anything else that you did around 
kind of decreasing the amount of nervousness that you had before the speech? That's an excellent question. Uh, later on in my journey, I met this one guy that has been in Toastmasters for plenty of years. Uh, he's another Bengali like, a guy like me. And I asked him, hey, Sam, I'm on speech number six, and I still get nervous before I talk. And he said, good, what's the problem? I was like, didn't you hear me? I get nervous before I speak. And he's like, you should start worrying the day that you don't get nervous. And when he initially said that, I didn't get what he meant. But I was able to get what he meant a few years later when one of my friends, he asked me to uh, give a talk in this graduation ceremony that he was hosting. So just for a little bit of context, uh, he leads young kids and teaches them how to public speak. And at the end of the semester, uh, they have this small graduation. Okay. So he asked me to be a speaker there. And when I heard that it was little kids, I heard that there wasn't going to be that many people. I didn't get nervous. Right. And I went to the presentation. I gave my speech. Afterwards, my friend comes up to me and he's like, yo, are you okay? I was like, yeah, what's up? And that's when he said, I don't know, man, you just didn't have that same fire that you normally have with your presentations. You seemed very flat. And this is a good friend of mine giving me this honest feedback. And that's when Sam's message clicked perfectly. This nervousness that we have before a presentation, view it as energy view it as excitement rather than calling it speech anxiety, call it speech excitement. And that's a lesson that I learned. Younger me didn't have the perspective where I thought, oh no, my heartbeat is going extremely fast. Something's wrong. But older me started to understand, yes, my heartbeat is going very fast. I'm starting to get the energy. I don't need coffee or Red Bull or a monster drink. And that's when my perception started to change where you never will fully kill off the nerves. Okay. Us as human beings, we're not technically wired to like a whole bunch of eyeballs staring at us. Our ancient ancestors didn't like that because that typically meant that they were getting ostracized from their tribe. And we're still operating with that operating system. But nowadays, we need to embrace those feelings. And the more that you embrace it, the more that it adds color to your words, color to your message, and put some passion behind your message. There's a number of ways that I could go with that, Arman, but I absolutely love that story. And the first of those is nerves definitely sharpen your responses. So it puts you in that kind of fight, fight or flight space. And as long as you can control it enough to not speak too quickly or stumble in your words or choke all entirely, it sharpens up your ability to think, to speak, to communicate. It makes you look more energized. And like you say, it avoids that flatness of presentation that you felt that you, your, your friend felt that you gave. And equally, when you hark back to like evolutionary and how we've developed and what we're used to, like you say, our brain has not evolved fast enough to realize that the fact that we're up in front of this group of people to deliver a presentation, sometimes it's like paid presentations or paid invitations. And your mind is thinking, oh God, like this is me being evicted from the tribe or being excluded or whatever else it's thinking about. Instead, it's just channeling that nervous energy as energy, as you said, and using it to deliver something that's more high energy, that's like faster paced, but while still being deliberate and almost using it to become more charismatic, which is again, another topic that I'm sure we'll get onto. But I absolutely love the fact that by reframing the use of the words nervous to energy, we straight away change the dynamic and the wiring within our own minds. Yes. And it works with public speaking. It works with social skills as well. So from here on out, call it speech excitement, call it social excitement. And even though it seems like something very small, it's like, okay, what's the big deal? It's just a change in words. Over time, your perception starts to embrace these feelings and you start to work alongside these feelings. And that's pretty much what any form of communication is. When someone is charismatic, what do we often say? This guy believes in his message. This guy has that fire, something special about this person. And this pretty much just means that there's emotion, there's tone in what he's saying. Tone in what you're saying is such a key thing as well, because even as we become more confident and charismatic, 
sometimes we can fall back as you did into that stage of being maybe a wee bit a wee bit duller and not as not as elevated not as excited and not as differential in terms of how we speak when that happens so for you to fall into that when you were giving that presentation it's probably quite a valuable lesson and yet again an experience that you probably look back on favorably by having exposure to that and that lesson from sam that the problem is when your nerves go entirely that's a problem exactly and sam was happy that i was eventually able to realize this i called him back a few years later and i told him about what just happened with me and he said See, now you understand that public speaking or any form of communication is a lifelong journey. It's not a finite process. And this basically means that you never completely figure out any skill set out there. Do you watch any sports by any chance? Do you watch basketball? Soccer and football would be the main one um, for me. But I've, oh, I've, okay. I've watched basketball before. I think everyone watched that Michael Jordan Last Dance documentary on Netflix, didn't we? So I, I do appreciate basketball. Okay, perfect. So I'll use Michael Jordan as an example. Do you think he, in his prime, would ever come into practice and be like, today, I don't need to practice. I have figured out basketball. That's something that, no, of course not. He's a professional and that's what he gets paid to do. But the thing with soft skills is that since it's invisible, since you cannot see it with your eyes often, we may have the tendency to undermine the importance of practice. So that lesson just taught me that you always need to be practicing. You always need to be getting better at something. Even nowadays with YouTube videos, I'll notice that I'm doing a video and suddenly my back starts to get stiff. And I start to think, huh, I've already done 200 videos. Why is my back getting stiff? This isn't a problem that I faced before. And old school me would have probably been offended. Like, man, I'm putting in all this practice and my back will get stiff. I thought I'll have it all figured out. Well, nowadays, I just see this as a new data point, something that I could use for the future. Yeah, again, perspective is, is, is a superpower, isn't it? And how you frame how things show up for you as a positive or as a learning point rather than as a point of failure. And equally, if it was a point of failure, it's like a learning experience that you move forward from. You're very, very good at storytelling. And I know that's something that you try and teach onto your clients. How can we utilize storytelling more so within our communication? One of the best things to do, Colin, is to learn how to tell stories about yourself. If you could tell stories about yourself, then automatically you figure out storytelling in a practical level. And to give you an example of this, I had this one acquaintance who wanted to ask his boss for, for a promotion. And the first time he ever asked his boss, the boss said no. And my friend was offended and he was thinking, now what does this boss know anyways? Why am I even working for this guy? I'm much more qualified than him. And he decided that he wasn't going to put all the blame on his boss. It took him some time to realize this, but he realized that he needed to alter his strategy. So the first time that he went asking for the promotion, he was pretty much just overwhelming his boss with a bunch of PowerPoints, a bunch of data, a bunch of statistics on what he does, but there was no narrative behind it. The boss kept thinking, so what? So two years later, when he came back to the boss and asked him for a promotion, this time he shared a quick little story about what all these narratives mean and the impact that he's having in the company. But to take it a level further, he said in his story, how life would be like if he wasn't an employee in this company. By simply painting that picture for the boss, eventually the boss was able to understand, hey, I need this guy. Okay, not only am I going to give you a promotion, I'm also going to give you a bonus as well. So this is just one of the facets in life where storytelling serves practicality, where humans naturally, we don't like to be swarmed with a bunch of data facts, charts, etc. Every person that you're speaking to, you should imagine that there's this poster on their forehead that writes, so what? And storytelling addresses that so what perfectly. And that's just how humans are naturally wired to take in information. Yeah, again, just such a good story, Arman. I, I, I absolutely love that. It's funny that you say about in stark contrast to when some of these lectured and given facts and figures and kind of presented that quite hard, when you tell a story to bring that all to life, 
it makes the message resonate an awful lot more. I was fortunate to have the author Celeste Headley on the podcast back, must have been episode 50 or something like that. And she told me that the only time that people leave a conversation with like negative effects, so like less dopamine, less serotonin, is when they're lectured and just told the whole time rather than feeling like they're involved or brought into the conversation. And the way that you told that story there, that employee brought their boss into the story, into the picture, into the narrative to understand what the impact of the promotion would be, what the impact of them not being in that role would be. And straight away, it gets a lot more buy-in than if he had just presented again the facts and the figures of what I've delivered over the last year. And if I leave, it will be terrible. That's not enough. You need to bring the story to life and bring in a lot about it. And I think some of the examples you've given throughout this podcast on your story is a really good way of showing how you've brought your story to life and your journey to life through little stories here and there about how you spoke to Sam, what happened at Toastmasters, what one of your friends has done, what your other friend said to you. It's a really good way to bring the story and the, the message to life. Absolutely. And when you think about it, Colin, at a baseline level, we are good storytellers. We just need to move out of our own way. And I'll give you an example. Imagine, I don't know if in the UK traffic is as bad as Florida, but in Florida, a lot of people will just randomly cut you off, okay? And when someone cuts you off, immediately, a part of you is thinking, huh, should I cut this person off or not? And then you decide to be the bigger man, and you're like, no, I'm not going to cut them off. But then you go back home, and whoever you live with, it could be your wife or your roommate, is looking at you and is like, hey, is everything okay? You look so angry. That's when you go into this zone. You're like, man, you wouldn't believe what just happened to me. There was this goon that came out of the blue moon and cut me off and I almost died. And, and here you are just telling a story without any form of preparation or planning. This just goes on to show that human beings at a natural level like to storytell. Another example is people who gossip a lot. They'll gossip nonstop. And they'll be like, well, I'm not a good storyteller. What do you think you're doing? Gossiping is a form of storytelling. So just naturally, we're continuously speaking in narratives. However, a lot of the times in formal education, those narratives are pulled out of us and a lot of facts and data are inserted in us. So a big part of learning to tell stories is to unlearn, not relearn something. Yeah, undoubtedly. And I think where you're unlearning some of the statistical stuff, particularly where you're coming from a background, like you said, of like hard skills and engineering and a lot of the people that listen to this podcast to be like highly educated in school and university and college, whatever else they've done. Like you say, it's kind of drilled into us to be very fact driven. And I love numbers. I love data, but you cannot purely win people's hearts and minds and the, the connection that you want to build with the people around you with just this skill set. So that's where the, the storytelling comes in. I yes. Think- oh, yes. In my new book, Speakeasy, How to Be More Articulate, I opened the book by talking about a period in my life when I was getting invited into these meetings where I shouldn't have been invited to. There were a lot of senior operators there and me. And even my teammates were confused. Yo, why is this rookie engineer getting invited to these meetings for and not us? And I was confused and I didn't know what to do. So eventually I went up to one of the people who kept inviting me. Her name was Deborah, And I was like, why do you keep inviting me? Why aren't you inviting the other more qualified engineers? And that's when she responded back with, because you speak in a way where we can understand. And it made all the sense because at that stage of my career, I had the technical knowledge, but since I was still a beginner, I was highly moldable. I didn't sound like a machine like a lot of the other coworkers did. So this was another case where storytelling served practicality because someone in operations, they don't care about the data, the CPU, the central processing units, all that kind of stuff. They just want to know, so what? And then we could go back to business. They've all got that sticker on their forehead saying, so what, Armin? Yep. <laughs> I've seen you before encourage negative visualization. That almost sounds counterintuitive to like going in with a positive mindset about how your speech or how your communication, how your presentation is going to go. And it's quite unusual, but what are the benefits in your opinion? So with negative visualization, Colin, the way that it works is that 
you envision the worst thing that could possibly happen and you rising above anyways. In a great world, whenever we're getting on the stage, only good things can happen where the audience is looking at us, they're paying attention and no one is on their phones, etc. But the unfortunate truth is that in the real world, there's going to be a lot of roadblocks that are thrown in the way. A lot of people are not going to be paying attention. Some people are going to be yawning and some people are going to pull out their phone while they're in the front row and just be giggling and texting someone else. And if you're someone that can embrace for the second thing to happen, when it does happen, you're not as rattled. And it's great that you asked me this question because the YouTube video that I posted yesterday, it basically talked about a moment when I was supposed to give a presentation in this beautiful coffee house. Everything was supposed to be cool, AC, nice. This was a mastermind group. And I'm wearing a suit, right? So the day that I go to give the presentation, I know this huge, I noticed this huge line that's waiting outside the coffee house. And I'm thinking, how come none of you guys are inside? And that's when the guy's like, didn't you hear that the owner never showed up? I guess they don't know that we're throwing an event today. I was thinking, wait, what? I'm supposed to be a, a speaker. And this is one of those mastermind groups where tons of people from different parts of the state travel to. And it would be unfortunate if we just cancel it for no reason. So I asked the different people there who could open up their apartment or house so we could host a meeting and no one volunteered. But luckily one guy was like, you can't use my house, but you can use my guest area. It's a pool where we could all pull up chairs. And the only problem is that it's hot. And that was a problem. It was really hot. So as I was giving my presentation, I'm wearing a suit. It's 98 degrees. The sun is hitting my face and I'm expecting an enthusiastic audience. Instead, this group of people never got their coffee. They're angry. They're burning low energy audience. And this was not what I expected at all. But luckily throughout my journey, I did a lot of negative visualization to expect a moment like this and not be completely rattled when a moment like this happened. So I was able to finish my talk, but that just ties into the initial question, Colin, that in order to negative visualize, you always have to see yourself rising above anyways. If you're just picturing the worst thing that's going to happen and you're not rising above, that's just you being anxious, but you got to picture yourself rising above and train that muscle. So when situations like this happen, when the coffee owner doesn't show up, you can still thrive. Brilliant. And I've, I've got two examples that I'm going to try and share to really help the listeners in terms of like two different analogies. And one's going to come from the sports world. We were talking there about basketball, but if we talk about, about golf, I know that Tiger Woods was massive on visualization about how his round would go throughout the, throughout, throughout the course of each hole. And there'd be particular holes maybe with like a bunker or a water hazard or something that he needs to avoid. And he's visualizing in his mind the worst case scenario. So going into that, penalty shots, not making a birdie, not making a par, whatever else, and visualizing how he'll shape the ball and swing the club and move it away from that hazard and that worst case scenario to generate the best possible outcome. So I think it's wonderful that you've used that style to think about, oh, well, if I turn up to this presentation and this isn't right and this isn't right, then I can still overcome it by doing this, 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 by falling back on these soft skills and these presentation styles that I have to enable that I still deliver a talk that's of a good quality and a good standard. And the other thing that was in my head immediately was how many times do people turn up to presentations or give meetings internally and they're so reliant on the PowerPoint aid or the, the PDF or whatever they're sharing that if that went wrong, which happens all the time in meeting rooms, you go in and you can't find the, the, the connector to the laptop, whatever else. And people they're like, oh my God, what am I going to do without my notes? That is like, that is the ultimate in negative visualization. The worst case scenario, you show up and what you need isn't available. So to visualize how you would deliver without that, and then that keyword begins with P, preparation to still be able to deliver is, is all important. So that was two things that you got me thinking about immediately there, Armin, when you were talking about the different ways to use negative visualization for a positive outcome. You nailed it, especially your second example, Colin, where 
when we're thinking negative visualization, it doesn't have to be something grand or a spectacle. Instead, it could be something as small as, hmm, what if the PowerPoint slides don't work? What if there are technical difficulties? Do I have a backup plan? What if for some reason there's a bird who snatches all my index cards the day of the speech? Am I still capable of delivering the speech? It could be something as small as that. But when you insert that moment of negative visualization, it gets you thinking differently. And you're like, okay, I have the index cards, but at this point, I'm too reliant on it. If the bird does take it, then I cannot give the speech. How about as I'm preparing, I now learn this speech in a way where the index cards will help, but they're not needed. They're not a crutch. They're not the absolute essential. They're not like the fundamental core foundation to the presentation that you're reading off them the whole time. You've got some sort of ability to deliver without. That's uh, that's massive. One of the last areas I wanted to speak with you about was some of the key habits that you have and you continue to maintain as you're upskilling. Because you said there that soft skills, they cannot just be relied upon to always maintain at a certain level without some form of work. What are some of that? What are some of those, sorry, that, that, that you continue to do? Well, one thing that I keep doing is using Armani Talks as a school for me personally improving soft skills. So I consistently post three YouTube videos a week. I post three podcasts a week. I write on my daily newsletter. And this just keeps the blade sharp, Colin. I write books as well, which allows me to get my ideas and put it into words. And the more that I keep working on Armani Talks, I will see a new thing breaking, a new thing that I have to learn in order to keep on growing it and maintaining it. So right now, for your listeners, I recommend you find that one hobby that can keep forcing you to grow. For me, Armani Talks is a business, but at the end of the day, it's a hobby as well. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy expressing ideas and chatting with people like yourself and continuously getting the message out there. So that's the way that I keep the blade sharp, Colin. I always find different ways to add content on a consistent basis. If we're thinking about keeping the the blade sharp and we're using that analogy of chopping down the tree, what are some of the other ways that you improve your technique to cut down the tree, so to speak? So what are some of the sources that you use to learn about better techniques and better ways to communicate? Like, are you a voracious reader? Are you a voracious podcast listener to other sources? What are you consuming that's topping up this bank of knowledge you've got? So I am a wide reader. So I, for some reason, I rarely get public speaking lessons from public speaking books. I read a wide variety of content. I'll read ancient books, right? The Bible, Quran, Bhagavad Gita. I'll read financial books. I'll read, what else? Business books. I'm very wide read, autobiographies as well. I also recommend that you do more observing whenever you're dealing with people. See people that are charismatic, see people who are great interviewers, and just see what is making them tick. Why are they charming for? And in addition to that, with podcasts, I recommend that you listen to some podcasts, but I honestly recommend that they start creating something of value as well. So consume with the intention of creating. That's a, that's, that's a mic drop. I absolutely love that. I think that when we create something, even if it's not meant for mass consumption, so it could be a blog that you never really publish beyond anything else, just the practice of you writing and getting your thoughts out and your words out will improve your ability to speak to people when there are people listening or are people reading. And I, I love the yes. fact that even if you're doing it behind the scenes, it's still very, very powerful. That's why I'm a big, big fan of journaling actually in a on a personal basis, I like to, to write down in the morning and at night, gratitude, plans, ideas. And I find that it improves my ability to speak those into the world when I choose to. And I don't always have to choose to, but if I wanted to, I can do. See, when I'm communicating with someone, immediately I could look at the person and be like, okay, this guy journals, this guy doesn't. And as I was communicating with you, I knew it. I was thinking, Colin journals because he's an extremely clear communicator and he knows what he wants to say. And most people who do journal have those traits because communicating, speaking, it follows the T-O-L-D formula. You'll see a lot of politicians and authors talking about that, which basically means thinking out loud. 
the mistake that a lot of people make is that they're just focusing on the loud part or they're just speaking, but they don't have much to say. A task like journaling will allow you to understand what you want to say and build your own ideas. So in addition to reading, I definitely do recommend journaling as well because it gets you into that creator's mindset. So yeah, I could tell that you're a journaler. Awesome. Yeah, it definitely it definitely helps you get things clear in your mind and then you get the opportunity to put them down on paper and then you reconsume them when you read them back and straight away you've formulated something that previously was only going through maybe one revision, which is blurting out your mouth. But the second time you do it, you've put it down on paper and so it's almost gone through like proofreading before it's been put out to the world. And so you're not just doing that thinking out loud part, you're thinking out loud, but having already had a draft copy, which of course, it means that the next version is going to be better and more refined and easier to understand. Absolutely. Do you normally type it or handwrite it? All written, all written. I try and be digital free in the morning and before bed. Um, I'm, I'm quite big on digital minimalism to some extent, albeit that's difficult when you run platforms, but you have to draw the lines. So I, I write it in the morning and I write it in the evening. My handwriting is appalling for starters, but it's, uh, <laughs> but it, it, I certainly find that's better because if I open up the laptop and I start to type, then something will distract me. Something will break my flow and I'll, I'll not have the same connection to the paper. Right, same. I, I started off typing, but nowadays I'm more of a handwriter. And when you're handwriting, Colin, there's so many sub-processes that are working in your favor, which makes you a better communicator. You're engaging memory banks, the language portion of your brain, motor sensory skills, balance so much when you're just moving a pen or a pencil. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so many, so many benefits to doing that, particularly in this digital world where we're constantly on. When you remove some of the stimulus of the light and the different buzzing and sensations that you get and just connect with the paper, it can actually be quite difficult, quite painful to write what you want to write or to write it in the right way. But much like anything, the consistency of doing it for becoming up for 19, 20 months, I've been doing it now, so just shy of two years. Wow. I've found that I get better and better in the same way that I get better at podcast interviews. I get better at training in the gym. I get better at um, speaking to strangers in public, whatever it is. I've kind of grooved that. And it's the same that anyone listening to this podcast, if you take action and you start to build momentum, it will become easier over time. Absolutely. It's just a game of, getting more data, refining it, and just keep collecting more data. Eventually, you want to have fun with it too, where nowadays, uh, there's a lot of talk about mental toughness. But if you notice the element of fun, fun and mental toughness have the same output, which is the ability to work through good and bad times. So if you can have fun, there's a different spirit that's involved. So that's one thing that I recommend with communication skills. It's where Joy always beats force. So if you could find different ways where you're thinking, how can I make this fun? If I have an interview today, rather than me getting through it, how can I engage with the other person and have a fun time as I'm doing the interview? And the more that you start to have fun, the more that you start to be consistent. And when someone's like, how are you so consistent? You're thinking, because I'm having fun. This is what I want to do. So this is just a tip that I have for some of your listeners who, if they are thinking about picking up journaling, have the right attitude where you're not getting through it. Instead, this is going to be something that will make you a better communicator, learn how to think much more clearly, make you much more precise in your articulation skills. There's so many benefits. So enjoy it. Massive, massive parallels to how you asked us to reframe social anxiety or speaking nerves to to excitement and like almost as soon as you change the language and the dynamic in the same way that you change the opportunity to journal rather than I have to journal I get to journal you're flipping those neurons in your brain to think this is an opportunity for me to embrace and enjoy rather than a task to overcome or battle through so I absolutely love again the the use of language that you've managed there and the only other thing that's left to ask you, Armin, is where's the best place for people to connect with you? Obviously, I've been shouting out your Twitter there, but apart from Twitter, what, what's, the, what's the handle for them to go to and where else should they head? So they could definitely head over to armanitalks.com. In that website, it's a collection of everything that I have, which includes my books, my blogs, my videos, my podcasts, 
And if you enjoyed the site, be sure to sign up for my newsletter, which you'll see a button for within the website. But for the starters, go on ArmaniTalks.com and you'll get familiar with the Armani Talks brand. Perfect. That'll be linked in the show notes below. Thank you once again, guys, for joining me. If you've enjoyed this one, take a screenshot, pop it on your Instagram story, tag me at call.cambro, and I'll be back to speak to you all again very, very soon.